All right, well, James chapter 2, most of you know we're making our way through this great letter. Again, if you're new or visiting, for us at Calvary, uh, one of the ways that we study the Scripture is systematic, uh, expository, and so that basically means we're just making our way book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and I will do my best as the Spirit enables me to we'll read together, I'll do my best to explain, and then of course we want to know how does that apply to our lives today? So, so what does this mean for me today and where I am? And, um, and we trust that the Spirit will bring the manna as we... Uh, Partake of the milk and the meat together. Amen? Amen. All right. If you're there with me, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, I entitled our message, Proof of Faith. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God and his word, if you don't mind, and hopefully get a couple more minutes out of uh, just stretching our legs. All right. James writes, and I'll backtrack a little to give us some context, but as we jump in kind of in the middle of his thought. But notice with me, he's asking questions. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Then he asks, Can faith save him? And he presents a a scenario, an illustration. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body? James again asks, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, notice James says, it's dead. He says, but someone will say, so he anticipates an argument, you have faith, I have works. He counters, well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And here, another rhetorical question. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? All right, we'll pause there and uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning the blessing we can gather together in this place that you've provided, your house. And Lord, we know your heart for your house. You desire to be a house of prayer. And Lord, help us to know what it means to be in prayer always. Even as we pray specifically for our study, but Lord, just in our hearts, we want to be in prayer for the Tuckers, the Fosters. We want to be in prayer for Kiara and Becca and the others who are traveling Lord, we want to be in prayer for uh, the Onuskas and other families who've recently just, their family has grown. We rejoice with them, but we pray that you would just give them grace upon grace as they adapt and readapt to a, a new one in their family. Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp for our feet, a light for our path, and by it we can know where to go and what to do, and Lord, also what not to do and where not to go. It's filled with exhortation as well as encouragement. And so, God, we pray that you'd, as James has already told us, that we might be hearers of your word and doers of your word. And so we commit our time to you now. We ask and pray these things together in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment and say hello to someone or maybe introduce yourself to somebody new?
All right. <laughs> well, I hope you've been enjoying uh, the summer here in Okinawa after all that rain what, a couple of months ago, but now it's just hot and humid. Uh, the moisture's still in the air, just in a different form. You know, summer in, Oki- summer in Okinawa can be a ton of fun, right? You, you've hopefully experienced and explored. There are a lot of things to do and places to go and things to eat and, and all of that. And, and one of the favorite places of my family, at least this past summer has been, and last summer too, has been the beach. And uh, for me, it's a place where I can just relax. I don't do a lot. I'm just kind of floating in the ocean, and that's my speed. From time to time, the kids will bring out they'll, you know, the stand-up paddleboard and take it out. It's not so much stand-up paddleboard for me. It's more like fall-off paddleboard uh, in my case, but it's fun nonetheless. And certainly enjoying the beautiful beaches that were spoiled here. Uh, with and, uh, and just, you know, incredible weather. So, uh, and it's not just the beach, right? I mean, there's many more activities and adventures that you can go on, hikes and waterfalls. Some of you are into scuba and snorkeling, and it's just great uh, to do through the summer. But uh, along with those places and activities, uh, there, there's also things that we have to be careful of, and there are certain dangers and cautions that come with our adventures. And uh, if you go to the ocean, for example, uh, they'll put up a sign and, uh, you know, the box jellyfish are out. So you have to be mindful of your surroundings and the jellyfish that are in the water. Um, If you're out hiking, you're going to one of those waterfalls, you you have to be mindful of, you know, critters and the habu snake is one of those. You have to be, you know, careful of that. You don't want to get bit by one of those. It's, uh, you know, you can, uh, it's very hurtful and harmful. And it's not just critters, you, you also have riptides, strong currents. Uh, you know, if you don't pay attention, that can be pretty dangerous. And, and sadly, typically, almost every summer, especially right when a typhoon comes, uh, we read in the news where someone who's curious about what the ocean looks like got a little too close. You know, they stood on the seawall and a big surge came and they got swept out to sea. And so, you know, we have to be careful of those things, mindful of these, you know, these kind of dangers that are around us. And if it's not the, uh, you know, if it's not the critters and if it's not the tides, I mean, just the summer sun in itself, like you, you want to make sure you stay hydrated, uh, put on sunblock, you know, wear appropriate clothes, because the summer sun in Okinawa can be pretty brutal too. Uh, and sometimes we find out, um, you know, the hard way, right? <laughs> a bad sunburn. So all of that to say, uh, there's a lot of things to enjoy uh, in our adventures here, but But appropriately, there are calls of caution, there are words of warning, and they're warranted, and they're helpful, they're needed for us in order to enjoy the blessings of Okinawa in the summer. Now, I mention all that because as I read this particular part of James, I think the same thing. I think, man, uh, James is writing, and our adventure of faith, there are a lot of things that we can enjoy and be blessed by the Lord. But he is writing to the reader in this section, and it is a word of warning. It is a call of caution. And what is the danger that James wants us to be very aware of? Well, I'll just tell you plainly. 
It is the danger of having a professed faith that produces no fruit. That's the danger. It's three times in 13 verses, James will say something to the effect that faith without works is dead. Verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26. Now, this is a subject that he's broached a little bit before. Back in chapter 1, he talked about it. And he also identified the source of this particular danger. The source really is self-deception. It is to believe something that's not true, or in this case, as he illustrates, to profess something that ultimately isn't true. And back in chapter 1, verse 22, he gives us that great exhortation, even as we began in our prayer, that to be doers of the word and not hearers only. But he adds this, lest we deceive ourselves. And so there is a danger of self-deception. And I want to submit to you in love that the weight of this warning, it's more than just a jellyfish sting. It's more than just a bad sunburn, as painful as those things can be. I mean, what James is putting on the line, if you will, what's at stake is spiritually significant. It's eternally important. And if that is the case, well, you and I would do well to make sure that we understand and give full attention to what the Word of God is saying, and I'll add this, and what the Word of God is not saying. Because when it comes to works and faith, there can be times where we can get confused about those things, and people get confused about those things. And so we're going to look at the proof of our faith. And I did, in a sense, cut this in half. So this is part one. Uh, hopefully you'll come back next week for part two as we'll finish out the chapter. James has more to say. Let me draw your attention back to verse 14. We reread where James asks, what does it profit my brethren if someone says, the idea, if someone's claiming, they profess this, they have faith. But then he asks, but they don't have works. And notice then he asks this question, can faith save him? Now, if you're familiar with the book of James, if you've been with us as we've started, you know that the main topic of his entire book, is this, this entire letter that he's writing, it's on faith. That's what he's writing about, faith. And the overall theme is our faith in God should be more than just words, that there should be an equal sign between what we profess and what we practice, the doctrine that we say we ascribe to, and then the doing that we actually, you know, do. And hence, our, the title of our series is just Faith That Works. And those things go hand in hand. That what we say we believe should be seen in the way that we behave. Now, He's going to focus in on certain parts of that. In the previous section, verses 1 through 13, his focus was how faith doesn't play favorites. And he gave the example, or he reminded us that we belong to Christ. It's under that noble name in which we carry that banner. It's the faith that we hold of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so the main idea of that first part was that true faith plays no favorites, that God shows no partiality. God doesn't judge a person on the outward appearance. And if God doesn't show partiality, God doesn't play favorites, then you and I as the church, as followers of Christ, we have no business doing that either. There is no room at all for discrimination in the body of Christ. Now, we we spent some time there, and if you remember, we talked about, listen, God has made us different. It's not that we ignore that. It's not that we deny that. We embrace our differences to the glory of God, and we can celebrate those differences. We are, if you will, this beautiful kaleidoscope of different shapes and shades and colors and and, and all, you know, everything under God's creation that God puts together. And really for us as a church, then we get to be the prime example of what unity looks like even through our diversity. A reflection of God himself. And so God shows no discrimination. We shouldn't either. And ultimately, how we treat one another is a reflection of God's love. The example is Jesus. He treated people who were different. <laughs> Even society and culturally that would say, oh, they are less than or they are the outcast. Man, he treated them with love and dignity and respect and kindness. He elevated the, the, the status of the disenfranchised. And likewise, we should too. Now, that, that's the first part. <laughs> James continues to talk about faith, but he kind of pivots a little, and he's going to talk about now faith and the demonstration of our faith. The relationship between faith and works. And it is a relationship that we need to make sure we understand. Again, I think it's a relationship that sometimes people, I have, maybe you have, gotten wrong. This dichotomy between the two, the tension between those two things. But if eternity is at stake, like James says it is, we better make sure we don't get it wrong. Now, as James has done prior, he asks a series of questions. And I mentioned to you, it's it's a grammatical device to get you and I to think. That we're to worship God with all of our strength and all of our soul, all of our heart and all of our mind. To engage our brain and our faith. Amen? And so he wants them to think through these things. And what is he asking? He says, What does it benefit you? Notice he addresses them, my brethren. He's still talking to family. What does it benefit you? What does it profit you? What's the bottom line here? That if you say, or a person says they have faith, but then they don't have works, notice he asks this follow-up question. Can that faith actually save him? What good does it do a person in the end if they're just professing these things? But here's the scenario, and it's plain enough as he gives it to us, right? A person is claiming, that's the idea. They're saying this. They're professing to have this. And so they say it with their mouth, but to look at their life, there's nothing there. And so James asks the question, is that person really saved? Is that type of faith a faith that can save them? Now he assumes that we're all going to have the same answer, right? It's a resounding no. A sobering no. I mean, it's a very sobering thought to think this, that just because we claim to be a Christian doesn't mean we're a Christian. 
And we don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So it's a prompt. It's a prompt for our own diagnosis. What am I? What are you? What are we placing our hope and our faith and our trust and eternity in? Now, context is important. James is writing to a group of believers who recently, if you will, came out of a very traditional, religious, many of them were Jewish worshipers. God-fearing, so they're very religious. It's a religious system. And some of us can relate to that. Maybe you weren't Jewish, but you had a very religious upbringing. You have a very religious heritage and culture. For the few first years of my life, that was my family. We went to mass uh, religiously. And it all came to a screaming end when my parents got divorced. But I'm grateful for those foundational years. But I'll say of my experience, I didn't have a relationship with God. It was just a, a religious system. And so when James is talking about faith, Although he doesn't define it for us, we have to define it. What is he talking about? What kind of faith is he talking about? Because there were a group of people who put their faith in a system. There are a group of people who put their faith in culture or a heritage, a certain identity. They thought, well, well, Abraham's, you know, our great-great-grandparents are saved, and so we got to tick it in. But they were mistaken. And so we have to make sure we define the type of faith that James is talking about. And he gives us a clue to that when he asks, does that faith save them? He's talking about saving faith. And saving faith only comes one way. It is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Only faith in Christ saves us. The Bible says there is no other name given under heaven which we must be saved. It is that true confession of your heart and mine, believing that we were sinners, separated from God, and that the only remedy to that was that God himself came in the person of Christ, who lived for you and for me as a substitute for you as he did for me, and he died on a cross on a hill called Calvary, paying the penalty, taking the punishment, buried, and then three days later, according to the scriptures, he rose again. And the Bible says that it was God who loved us, God who was rich in mercy, who then loved us, sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he gave his life for us. We have no basis of our own merit to come to him. We don't rate it. We don't earn it. Nothing that we do. And the Bible uses these words, for God so loved. God gave. God sent. God initiated. Jesus came. He was on a search and rescue plan. It's God who provided. It's God who pursued. And by the way, God still pursues you. We simply come in response to what God has done for us. And then we then entrust our lives wholly to Jesus. 
And, and the Bible describes it, it's a gift that we receive. It's nothing that we earn. For some of you who've been around for a bit uh, and asked for your uh, patience and apology, I, I share this story. You've heard it a lot. There's a lot of new, there's, I have new people, so I'm going to just share it with them. <laughs> You're welcome. Yes. So years ago, uh, I was flying to the United States to go to a conference, and uh, I was in Narita at the time, waiting for our flight to take off, and sure enough, they, you know, they make their calling, and so I'm standing in line in the little galleyway in that little walk, you know, that skywalk thing to board the plane, and in front of me are four Japanese businessmen, and they're all in their suits, and they have their company emblem. And, uh, and I'm watching some of their interaction between them. And the guy that's right in front of me, by my observation, he's a little bit older, so he seems like he's the boss. And just by the way that the other three were talking to him, uh, with a lot of reverence, they're bowing quite a bit, and, and he's just a little bit older. Well, I also noticed that as he's standing there, he has a first-class ticket. And, and so initially I thought, wow, that's nice of this guy to you know, to stand with his guys, because we're, we're on the economy class line. <laughs> you know, if you have a business class or first class, or if you have kids, right, you get to go first, right? And business class and first class, they have a whole different line uh, that they go on. But this guy's standing in front of me, and, and, uh, and as we're approaching the, the door to get on the airplane, the boss guy motions to the youngest by appearance. He looks like the youngest of the group. And he basically is trying to take the guy's ticket, which is the economy, because it looks just like mine. And he's trying to hand him his first class ticket. The young guy is refusing. His eyes get wide as saucers. He's like, no, like, like, no. And then the other two are also saying no, right? They're making a protest. Like, it's fine. Like, don't do that. And, and, and it seems like they're going back and forth for quite a bit. Like, the rest of the line's gone. I thought, I have a solution to this problem. <laughs> I, I can solve this conflict easily right here. Yeah. Finally, eventually, the young guy reluctantly takes the boss's first-class ticket. And he couldn't hide his smile, though, right? You know. And the other guys are still shocked. And I'm kind of shocked. I'm like, that's a nice gift. Like, that Narita LA flight, that's a long flight. He's going to be in first class. I thought, man, good for him. But right when that happened, I thought, oh, man, it just kind of hit me. Like, that's the gospel. Right? There the boss stood in the same line as the rest of us who had a, a reserved seat somewhere else and just on his own volition said, hey, give me your, <laughs> if I can say it this way, give me your lesser junkie seat and I'm going to give you my greater seat and just let's trade places. Gang, that is what Jesus did for us. He became a man. God became a man, and he stood with us. And his standing, if you will, his seat before the Lord, before the Father, is perfect, perfect righteousness. Ours, the Bible says, right, our righteousness is like filthy rags. We, we all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus was without sin. And he came and he died on a cross for us. And that transaction, if you will, that's what paid, if I can say it this way, if I can spiritualize my, exam, my illustration, the ticket for us. And he says, hey, I'll trade places with you. 
I will take your place of judgment. I will take your place of condemnation. And I'm going to give you my right standing before the Father. A place of honor. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin, to take our sin on our behalf. And the rest of that verse goes on to say, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's a double trade. James is talking about saving faith. And he wants to make sure, and we need to make sure that we understand the relationship between saving faith and works. We do not work for our salvation. God did the work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you and I have been saved through faith, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any of us boast. And James wants to make sure we understand this relationship, but also that works are important. Works are important. They're vital to our faith, but there is an important placement in our faith, if I can say it that way. There's an important order in our faith. Good works should be there, but they are the product of our faith in Christ. Good works don't produce salvation. It's the other way around. Luther put it this way, it's faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is not alone. And so James puts forth another scenario Here's yet another illustration for us to understand and grab a hold of it, why he thinks this is very important. Here's the scenario. If a brother or sister is naked. So in context, he's talking about someone we know. Perhaps even a church member. They, they, they are in need. That's the idea. They don't have clothes. They are in need of something physical, material. Or they're destitute of daily food. They don't have the basic necessities of life. He says, and then if our response to them is to give them platitudes, spiritual speak but effectively does nothing, depart in peace, God bless you, be on your way. He says, and you do that, but you don't give them the things that they need? Again, he asks the same question, what does that profit? How does that benefit? Now the answer should be obvious. It does nothing. It does nothing. It does nothing for the person in need. It does nothing for that person who's on the giving side. It doesn't help the person who's hungry. It doesn't help them when they're cold. I mean, words in themselves and I need to qualify that, in this situation, they're ineffective. James is saying, listen, warm wishes don't warm a cold body. There needs to be more than that. Now, James is going to have a lot more to say about our words. We, we talked about this before. He, he, he'll come back to our words, the weight of our words, the power of our words, how our words can be weaponized. He's going to have a lot to say. 
And there's even a space in there like, you know, we have to be careful because we can also have not just careless words, but we can also have mindless words. We're just kind of talking to talk. And there is a sense of this where he's just saying, listen, you're giving, you're giving this speech, but it doesn't, it avails nothing. And we're guilty of that. Let me just make a small application. There are times where maybe you've asked somebody or maybe you're the one answering. Someone says, how are you doing today? Our, our default answer usually is fine. Even if it's not true. Right? We're just kind of programmed that way. Fine, good. Uh, I, I worked retail a lot of years. Too many years. I still have PTSD from uh, Black Friday. <laughs> if you work retail, God bless you. Man. Anyways. I, I, so when I worked retail, I had to, I, I have, I'd often have to entertain myself. <laughs> and, and one of the ways that I would entertain myself is that when people came in, by default, regardless of what you ask them, their answer often was just looking. I'm just looking. And so they come in, I'm like, how are you doing today? They're just looking. And so I'd engage them. I didn't ask you what you're doing. They're like, what? <laughs> um, I asked how you're doing, not what you're doing. And it would like, take them back for a while. What do you, they didn't realize, right? It's just automatic. Like, leave me alone. I just want to go shopping. I mean, sometimes we have these mindless words and and so James is addressing a little bit of that. Like, you hear somebody's need, you're like, oh, I'll pray for you. God bless you. And, and, and so there's a challenge there. Like, shouldn't we do a little bit more? <laughs> if it's in your means to do that, then at least have a prayerful consideration of that. Now, here's what I want to offer to you. His main point at this time isn't necessarily to exhort his reader to be... Um, love people practically in this regard. He's making an illustration. But there's a point there nonetheless, even in his illustration. Hopefully that makes sense. And, and it's not just him. See, John writes similarly in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. If you're not familiar with that portion, I encourage you highly to read it and meditate on it and maybe perhaps even memorize it. 1 John three sixteen through 18. John says, by this we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for his brethren, and we ought to, we should do the same. Have that type of love. Then he adds this, and if anyone has material possessions, you have the physical means, you have the monetary means, you have the ability. When you see a brother or sister and they're in need, they're in real need, but if you or I withhold compassion and, and we don't do anything to help them, even John says, how can the love of God really be in your heart? Like that's a, a diagnostic, like, hey, you better check your heart. Like if you have the means to help somebody and they're in need and you don't do anything, what John and James is basically saying is that's incompatible to name the name of Christ and then not do anything. And so I do want to make a point off his illustration if I can. And I think it's something the Lord's been doing in our church as well. So I want to share that with you. See, God calls us to love others practically with wisdom. Well, the rest of that verse, he says, Little children, 
let us love not merely in word and speech, but in action and in truth. And that's a very important qualifier. I think action and truth speaks to doing, but also with discernment. It's helping with wisdom. God doesn't want us to be foolish or um, uh, poor stewards of his resources. I mean, there are some times where we don't just throw money at something, right? There's, we have to have wisdom. Okay, God, how do you want me to help this particular person or this situation? Because sadly, there have been times where we just enable somebody. And so we want to have wisdom in that. But help where appropriate. And so if I may, this is something I usually don't do, but I do want to talk a little bit about body life if I can. Because this is something the Lord's been just doing in our church and so church family, I want, I'm going to ask that you would pray along with us in our leadership. The season where we are loving people and serving people and what God is doing. Now, this is what God is doing. Now, for us as a church family, some of you guys know, we, we tithe from our tithe. And so there's more than a dozen missionaries and ministries that we support monetarily and I'm grateful for your generosity and faithfulness unto the Lord and and we want to be a church that plants churches and a, and a church that supports missionaries to get the gospel out. But at the same time, the Lord's been bringing people in. And so I want to give you four scenari- well, scenarios, four situations recent. The first is, some of you might remember Lillian. Lillian came to us about a year and a half ago. She was from Haiti, or she is from Haiti. And she came through a work situation that didn't didn't work out. Initially, it seemed really bad for her, but God used that. And so she ended up coming to the church. She came to faith, got baptized a year ago, got on fire for Jesus. It was amazing. But she herself was a single mom, just scrappy, like doing what she could, hard worker, just to make enough, and she's sending back to her own two daughters who are in Haiti and her mom to support them. And through a series of circumstances, it's a long story, God closed the door for her to remain here. And so uh, our church, along with Kadena, with Alex, we, we helped you know, get her a ticket. And so she's back in Haiti, and she's with her family. And so we praise the Lord for that. But if you watch the news... Uh, Things aren't great in Haiti. And so we as a church, we've committed to help her and just bless her monetarily just for uh, you know, a season and, and to do what we can just to be the body of Christ and family to her. And so I share that just to say, hey, be in prayer with us about that. And if the Lord would prompt your heart to help out, praise the Lord. If not, it's okay, but please pray. The second situation is, Oh, and by the way, we need to be in prayer for Haiti. The second situation, really unique that God's been doing, is this past couple months, we've been having um, these sisters from Ukraine been part of our church. And if you watch the news, the war is still happening in Ukraine. So four ladies who, I think they're downstairs even now, who are from the Ukraine, they don't speak English, a little bit of English, they don't speak Japanese, the government of Japan opened their borders for a refugee program. They're the first Ukrainians, all of Japan, here in Okinawa and in our church. 
And so God brought them. And so our prayer and prayer has been, Lord, how do we love them? How can we support them? What, what can we do? And it just makes me really curious what God is doing. The third is, uh, some of you met Jaja. So Jaja is from China. And I talked with her this morning. She, uh, she's a widow, single mom. Her husband who loved the Lord, but they were in, um, in China, an underground church. Her husband passed away on New Year's Day. And so she moved here to Okinawa with her 10-year-old daughter. Doesn't speak much English. Doesn't speak much Japanese. God opened the door for her to come. My initial question is like, why, why would you come here? She said that two different people in China told her about our church. I'm like, that's crazy. But interesting, right? Amazing. So she's like, I feel like God wants me to be here. I'm like, all right. And so our response is, Lord, would, how can we love her? And then <laughs> she's amazing. Like, so she started inviting. She got connected with some other Chinese families that are here. So two weeks ago, there was a lady, her family, they walked two hours. Two hours to come. And her kids, <laughs> oh, man, my heart broke for them. They were in the hot sun, and they were just, they were like, melting. They showed, they came for church. Walked two hours. Man, I, I'm embarrassed. Sometimes, I, you know, I'm the pastor, and sometimes I'm like, I don't want to go to church. Right? <laughs> Just being real. <laughs> so, you know, Lillian from Haiti, and then Ukrainian girls, um, Jaja, and, and growing group. Actually, there's a sister with her this morning, also from China. And then, and there's just our, there's a, there's at least three families I'm aware of in our own church, Okinawan families, and they fell on some hard times. And as a result, really, of just medical and some health issues, and their medical bills got big, their hospital bills got big. And so we're, we've been praying and trying to figure out, all right, Lord, we want to help them out and support them a little extra to do this, that we would love in, not just in word, but also in deed and in action. And, and I share those things just to say, please pray. That's what I'm really asking for. <laughs> but beyond that, if, if the Lord would spur your heart, towards action and, and helping. Uh, there's a portal for that. And so online, there's, if you go to our online giving, there's a thing called Love Out Loud. And there's the different groups that we you know, set up just for us as a church family to love on others. All right? So again, James' point isn't necessarily to uh, exhort us to this. The reason he brings it up is to illustrate and the illustration is this, how empty, spiritually sounding, but empty words are ineffective. And so here's his illustration. Here's his conclusion, verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, if it's missing this accompaniment, it is dead. It's worthless. It's ineffective. If our profession of faith produces no outward life change, uh, James doesn't hold back, does he? He says, then your words are worthless. What you believe, your faith, it's not alive. It's dead. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to have a dead faith. I mean, these are very sobering, very serious words for us to consider. And, and I have to confess, sometimes when I read these things, my mind goes to people that I know. Oh, this person, or that I, I wonder. They say they're a believer. They claim the name of Christ, but I don't see any fruit in their life. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's a family member. But, but really, <laughs> James is asking questions to the church that he's writing to, the believers that he's writing to, and, and really it's a prompt for all of us. We, we got to check ourselves. And Paul does the same thing in 2 Corinthians. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are the faith. And then he adds this, test yourself. Do you not realize this about yourself? Is Christ really in you? And so it's good. It's a good and necessary, maybe it might be hard consideration. Am I just playing church? Am I just here because my family comes? Do I think that I'm a Christian just because my grandma was or my family was or this is my heritage? Well, James says, hey, what about you? Where are you at with the Lord? Your faith, your walk. A couple years ago when I was in high school, um, just make sure you're awake. <laughs> so I, like many of you, know, I have these different groups that I kind of hung out with. You know, we're, we're quasi-clicky. Some of you guys know my story. I went to Gadina High School. So there's, you know, there, there's the sport part of me because I wrestled and played football. And then there's the bad kid of me. Like I almost lost my dad a stripe a couple times. <laughs> and then there's like the surfing crew that we hung out with. And so... There was a group of us that would often go to Snobby and we'd surf and bodyboard out there. And we had our own little gang name. It's called the Five Rock Locals. And there was another group of kids that claimed they were bodyboarders or claimed they were surfers. And they had the t-shirts, they wear the flip-flops, they had the puka shells. And so we we're like, hey, why don't you come with us? We're gonna be over here. They're like, yeah, yeah, but we never saw them. Like over and over again, like we're like, why don't you come out in the water? We never saw them. They looked the part. They knew the lingo. We never saw a board. We never saw them in the water. So we had a word for them back in my day. <laughs> and we called them posers. Very good, Dan. Posers. They were all talk, no show. James is really saying, listen, we don't want to be Christian posers where you know the lingo and you dress the part and you play the part, but you're not doing anything. You're just going through the motions. And again, it's a little hard-hitting, I realize, but it's so important because we're not talking about a sunburn. We're not talking about getting stung by a jellyfish. We're talking about where your soul is going to spend eternity. And so the question really is then, is do I really believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? And does the way I live line up with that confession? That's what he's driving home. He presents this hypothetical as though someone's going to argue back with him. Verse 18, he says, but someone will say, well, you have faith, I have works. James says, show me your faith without your works. The idea is you can't. 
and I will show you my faith through my works or by my works. Now, I have to be honest with you, I, I wrestle with that because the argument isn't uh, you have works and I have faith. That, that would seem to be the logical, right? I'm saying, well, you have works, but I have faith. And James says, okay, well, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. He says, you have faith and I have works. That's the argument. And so the objection, though, is this hypothetical one that James answers. But it's almost like the other side of the equation. I mean, he's been driving home the point this, and hopefully you can track with me. If, you're, if your faith is just your profession, you're just saying, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I go to church. But you, there is no evidence of that. Like what you do does not equal what you profess. James says, hey, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Like, like give, give an examination to that. But the other side of the equation is someone who says, well, I have works. As though works alone will be okay. That's the nuance. It's someone who then just trusts in works. And the argument James is making is, no, there needs to be both. They got to go together. It's a set. And so there are people who believe this, and there are also people who believe the other. They think, well, I'd just be a good person. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. All the things on my plus column are more than my minus column, and so I'm going to be good with God. James says, no, you're not. In fact, he's going to readdress this with cultural belief, if you will, especially for the Jewish person who thought, well, I have a lineage to Abraham, and so I have a free ticket to heaven. And James is going to say, like the writer of Hebrews said, no, you don't. Reality check, no, you don't. Just because grandma was a Christian, just because you grew up in a Christian home, I will make the mistake if I say, I think, oh, I was born a Christian because my parents were Christian. No, I wasn't born a Christian. I was born a sinner. We have to be born again. And yet there are people who believe that. And if that's you and say this in love, listen, you're deceiving yourself. And I say that with respect and honor, but with also a truth. Because sometimes we attach ourselves to a culture or a heritage or an institution or a religion. And we think, oh, I'm okay. And so that's what James is addressing in this particular argument. It's great that you're nice to your neighbor. It's great that maybe you help the homeless. But apart from faith, it doesn't do anything for you. And I find it interesting that it's James himself who's saying this because if you know who James is, right, the half-brother of Jesus, who himself didn't come to faith until after the resurrection, a devout Jew who had a front-row seat to hear and see what Jesus was doing and yet himself didn't believe in his own half-brother. He understands what religion and relationship is, the difference between those two. Again, we don't want to make the mistake to think, well, just because I go to church, and I want to say this, and hopefully I say this in the right way, or just because you're baptized, or just because you raised your hand or you came forward in an event. Now, I'm not trying to dismiss how God led you and the Spirit worked in your heart. 
but really it is to pause and say, Lord, is there fruit in my life? Because that's what we're talking about. And that's where James brings the argument. It has to be more than just an intellectual belief. He says, listen, if you believe there's one God, you have a monotheistic belief, you acknowledge that. He says, great, you do well. Then he adds this really scary argument, even the demons believe that. He's like, listen, theologically, the devil knows that God is real, that Jesus is the son of God. The demons even profess that, but they're not saved, right? They're not going to be in heaven with us. And so there's, there's a difference between just an intellectual, factual, I'm going to accept the fact of this, and it then being played out in your heart, being played out in your, your life. And James says, your faith should be evidenced by your action. Jesus gives a similar warning in Matthew 7. The context, though, is false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. So outwardly, they look innocent enough. He says, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Anybody know what the next line is? By their fruit. By their fruit, you will know them. He says, every good tree produces good fruit, and every bad tree produces bad fruit. Grape doesn't grow from a a thorn bush and figs from thistles. Now, the warning in context with Jesus is against false prophets, but the principle is one we can apply. By fruit, by what is evidenced in our life, what your life and my life, a person's life, what does it produce? That's how we'll know. Last week and the week before, uh, we were gifted two different fruit trees. Uh, Pastor Chris over at Coza, become a good friend of mine, uh, very graciously said, hey, I have these two trees. Would you like them? I'm like, yeah, we'd love those trees. One's a mango tree, right? They say money's don't, money doesn't grow on trees. Gold bars do, right? You know, the, you know the price of mangoes? Man. And the other is a, per, a persimmon tree, uh, which I like persimmons. Cocky. You like persimmons, Stacy? All right. Now, when he gave us the trees, there's no fruit on there, so I have to just trust that, you know, Pastor Chris not lying to me, that, <laughs> that it's actually a mango tree and a persimmon tree. Hopefully in this next season, we'll know. But how will we know? By the fruit that it produces, if I don't kill those trees first, right? Like, <laughs> it's evidenced by what grows. It's evidenced by what's produced. And plain and simply, that's our life too. You and I will show our faith by our works. And Jesus says, hey, let your light shine before men. When they see your good works, they will glorify our Father in heaven. If we claim to be a Christ follower and there's no evidence to that claim, James makes the conclusion, you're not really a Christian. I would say you really need to make sure that your heart's in the right place. The good news is, if that is you, if you feel like, man, that's me, I've been playing church, I've been going through the motions, Guess what? Jesus, if I can spiritualize it, is standing in line with us. And he still offers you an exchange. Your life for his, 
his perfect standing before the Father, and he'll take your place. Well, he already has. And the Bible says if you and I receive that by faith, believe in our heart, confess with our mouth, we'll be saved. It's not religion. It's not a system. It's a relationship that God seeks. And his Holy Spirit comes inside of you. And what we'll unpack next week is then God changes us from the inside out. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. A good reminder of the relationship between works and faith. Lord, we don't want to choose one over the other. But we also realize there's a proper placement and order of those things. It's your work that you completed. That Christ finished when he cried out, it is finished on the cross that we then enter in through and by the means of Jesus. As Hebrews tells us, the very veil in which we come into relationship into the Holy of Holies as we receive by faith the gift that you've given. Lord, I do pray if there's anybody here who has yet to do that or perhaps they came with a misunderstanding and they thought, oh, by my religion, by these works, and Lord, by your grace that you would show them, no, it, it, that, those are good. But that's not what brings us into the doorway of saving faith. It's believing and trusting our life to Christ and Christ alone. But Lord, I also pray that we'd understand to name the name of Christ then means our life will look a certain way. That we would be loving not just in words, but also in action. And God, as you've brought, especially these particular opportunities our way, Lord, may we respond to what you're doing in our church. Not just in our four walls, but Lord, also outside. As we interact with the world around us, may we shine your light by our good works. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.